Hello good people, my name is Ty, host of A Social Experiment, and in today's episode we'll be talking about Nietzsche's version of Christian morality. Before that, there are a few messages from me, so just stay tuned and we will hop right into it. Hello good people, my name is Ty, host of A Social Experiment, and if you enjoy listening to things, if you enjoy books even, get Audible, our sponsor for this week's episode. Audible is an amazing, amazing service which allows you to do whatever you want book-related. Get it. It has all of your favorite readers, it has all of your favorite authors, and all of your favorite books. You can also listen to a social experiment on there. Hopefully you're listening to us now on there. Just create an account. Use the link in the description. It helps me out more than you could possibly know. Back to the show. So, wow. Firstly, Nietzsche is an incredible thinker. I absolutely fantastic. His entire line of work is absolutely mind-boggling, and he's one of my favorite philosophers. If you like or dislike Nietzsche, you have to admit on some level that he's at least very, very interesting and admirable in his sort of brashness, boldness, and forwardness. But today, we're going to be looking at specifically one of his more famous tunes, or I should say infamous, depending on what side of the aisle you're on, his idea of morality, specifically Christian morality, and how abhorrent and awful it is. But what's so bad about it? Hasn't it gotten us to where we are today, this sort of Western, idealized culture? Well, let's take a look. So Nietzsche and Christian morality, or rather Christianity and morality, and how Nietzsche fits into that. So, beyond good and evil, we hold ourselves outside and above nature. This is the main idea that we're going to be working with throughout this entire episode. We hold ourselves above nature, and outside of it, I should say, almost like angels, some sort of god. This is called Sonderstellung in German. It means other position, and it's very... Christian morality lies heavily on this theme. So, Christian morals, as Nietzsche details them, are herd morals. There are the morals of slaves, workers, Christians, or basically the inferior class, is what Nietzsche is trying to derive here. And then you have something which is completely opposite to herd morals, and that's master morals, which really depicts a sort of strength. It's really key in sort of tyrants or the upper class, the aristocracy. A show of strength, a show of efficacy, which is one of Nietzsche's most pointed points, if you will. So, he really takes after the Homeric heroes a lot in his sort of idea of master morals, because Homeric heroes, they are the ideal of master morals. They are heroic by definition. And so he appeals to the slave class, or rather he believes that Christianity appeals to the slave class, this idea of revenge. And with the introduction of Christian morality, you have this entire shift in the scale of values. It flips the entire table, and so it's a kind of revenge from the lower classes onto the upper classes by just changing the entire rules of the game. There is pure justice in heaven. This is the idea. Christianity prizes this idea of moral good, which is pity, really, at its basis. Pity for others, and pity for yourself, even. The idea of being vulnerable and being the receiver of punishment as opposed to the actual dealer. Nietzsche sees this as evil, as you might have guessed already. And then you have master morality, which, as we've detailed, is good. Not necessarily in a modern moral sense, but good in a way that's effective. It's practical. It's utilitarian. Others do not matter. By others, I mean those who are not a part of the master class. Only a few geniuses of a culture matter. 
says Nietzsche. They are the ones that progress the civilization. Christianity inhibits genius by implementing these herd morals. Everyone just follows the crowd, no one thinks for themselves, and so the genius is dampened down. And this is why he says that Christian morality is actually, in his definition, immoral, because it hampers the productivity of a society by inhibiting that genius. In The Use of an Abuse of History, there's a good line, mankind can only be judged by its highest example. This is what we're seeing here playing out in his writing. And so the individual, this is the key that we're really seeing sort of take form in the shadows. The individual is the most prized unit of Nietzschean philosophy. The Nietzschean hero, that is who the individual is. And so you have a complete dichotomy here between the warrior, who would be the individual in the Nietzschean view, and the priest. The he is also an individual, but an individual turned evil. The priest is the shepherd for the herd. And the warrior, he just takes what he wants. It's his nature. Strong and weak is the distinction. It's natural. Good and evil are unnatural. Or at least the idea of them in a sort of Western conceptualized sense. It's the hawk to the sparrow. A hawk eats a sparrow because that's its job. It's in nature. That's what it does to survive. And we don't say that's morally abhorrent that it would eat that sparrow. We just go, that is nature taking its course. So why, don't, why do we draw a different line for humanity? And this all ties back into that Zonderstellung, which is that other place which Nietzsche says that Christians have, this other place above and outside of nature. There are no moral phenomena, there are only moral interpretations of phenomena. An excellent quote by Nietzsche, there are many of them, greatest prose poet in the entire German canon. But cruelty may not be an evil, pity though may be a vice. This is what we're seeing. Cruelty may not be evil because, of course, it's representing the warrior. He just takes what he wants. It's nature. But pity, pity is conniving. Pity is sly. Pity is ultimately undermining the framework of society by making it so that some people, or rather natural selection, doesn't take its course. The weak don't die out because of the pity of the stronger, which inherently, in that very idea, shackles the stronger to the weak and inhibits that genius. It's this circle. So moral conventions may be herd utilized chains to oppress the strong, is another way of putting that. And so where did these standards come from? The invention of good and evil. And so to do that, Nietzsche has gone back quite a ways. And you might imagine he says, well, that's Christianity. But even before Christianity, there was this sense of societal structure, and not always by tyrants oppressing the weak. And so where does conscience come from? That's really what we're looking for here. And conscience has been greatly augmented by Christianity, but not wholly. So what is conscience? People like to create pain in others. This is what Nietzsche ultimately drives at. This is his grand thought, one of many, I should say. People ultimately like creating pain in others. And when people are frustrated and unable to express this urge, they impose harm on themselves. And so this harm is conscience. A very deep thought, a very ring-around-the-rosy sort of framework, but it does work in a sort of Nietzschean sense. So the pang of conscience, there's a word for this in German as well, Gewissenbisse, which means the bite of conscience. People are predatory by nature, and when they don't bite others, they bite themselves, because that's all there is left to bite. And so when they're frustrated, again, just going to rephrase this, when they're frustrated, that frustration turns inward and crushes their soul, ultimately resulting in conscience. 
a sort of self-imposed slavery. But priests, priests are the real devils here. They are the real evildoers. Priests harness this herd morality. A warrior knows how to forget. He takes what's his and then he just moves on. But the priest can dominate culture, absolute control, by imposing guilt and conscience. It's a very unique sort of stratagem that hasn't been tried out before the advent of religion, specifically Christianity does this. It does it quite well by presenting this sort of all-powerful deity, this single deity. Omnipotence of God is an excuse for suffering, which, if you think about it, you don't have to go too far. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to see that conclusion. Suffering must have some sort of meaning. And think about this from a plebeian standpoint. You are there, you're being constantly oppressed by this ruling class. You don't know what to do. You're like, oh my goodness, why is this happening to me? Surely there must be a reason. And you find that reason in religion, specifically Christianity. And so it must be God is always watching. This is God's plan, or else he wouldn't do this to me. This is the idea. Omnipotence of God is an excuse for suffering. We must have it done to ourselves. Meaning makes suffering ultimately worse. And so it imposes guilt. That's what meaning does to suffering, says Nietzsche. This gewissenbisse, this bite of the conscience, it's ultimately much, much worse because the warrior can forget all of that. Even if there is initial pain, he can forget that, move on, look for better ways to succeed. With the advent of guilt on the horizon, you get people who not only are crushed by people or things outside of their control, but now they're crushed by themselves, thinking that this suffering has a meaning and that it must have some sort of reason and that it will ultimately get better without necessarily doing something about it, be it in heaven or in this world. And so modern society cannot revert to the warrior without a total upheaval. Now, is this Nietzsche calling for some sort of revolution? Probably not. He's just stating it how it is. This saddens him deeply because, of course, he um, is a great proponent of all of this. The classical warrior dies, but it lives on in the artist and the philosopher. <laughs> okay, all right. Of course it lives on in the philosopher. He is a philosopher. If you see any philosopher advocating for the rise of a sort of upper class and aristocracy, I will guarantee you it will always be a philosopher who thinks they are a member of that upper class. I guarantee you. But what does he mean by this? The warrior lives on in artists and philosophers. Well, the artists and philosophers are the only people in a westernized society who think and define for themselves entirely. The artists and the philosophers are the only people left who are individuals, truly individuals. And so what does this mean? Well, the individual is the most powerful unit, the most powerful component in an Nietzschean philosophy, as we've discussed. And the artist, he doesn't mean an artist as it were a painter, although it could mean that. It really means any creator. Give a business owner, for example, any sort of way that a person moves up in their society. An innovator is a great idea of this. So he defines it by saying the individual, but really it's this idea of original thought. And that may be the Nietzschean definition of the individual, someone who thinks originally. In fact, it is the definition, because of course we have master morals and herd morals. The only difference between them is that the herd is a herd. If they follow themselves in a sort of circular loop, the master is free to go wherever he chooses, at least in the mental domain, and in the physical, because 
Keep in mind, the master can move about and, like the hawk to the sparrow, pounce and kill its prey in a sort of nature-predatory manner in order to advance his own gain. This is the idea. Take charge for yourself. And Nietzsche's saying, just as I have, take charge for yourself, just as I have. Again, he includes philosopher in there because it's very self-aggrandizing. Nietzsche is very self-aggrandizing. On the whole, the entire idea Nietzsche poses is very self-aggrandizing. He doesn't think very much of almost anybody else. In fact, he thinks of himself as the Antichrist, as we'll go into in a lecture a few down from this, maybe two. He views himself as being almost above God. It's an incredible thought that someone could have that big of an ego. Absolutely phenomenal. But that, again, going back, looping back around to how I started this, you kind of have to admire him for that. He's truly a great thinker, whether you agree with him or not. He's sort of like Machiavelli in the sense that he's very controversial, yet at the same time, gazed upon in a sort of wonder. He's very captivating, I should say. But So, unfortunately, folks, I'm going to need to leave you here. This has been a quick concept overview of the idea of Nietzschean philosophy, Nietzschean morality specifically. Oh, and when Nietzsche says all of this stuff, again, he doesn't believe that this can all be rectified without some sort of major upheaval, which we'll go into with further lectures, I'm sure, with the idea of the ubermensch rising up and taking power, the idea of the superior human, the idea of the morally superior human. And, of course, what does morally superior mean? It means the Nietzschean view of the world, that human. Well, anyways. Hey, folks, if you stuck around, I applaud you. Thank you for these, I don't know, 15-something minutes. It really has been something. And I'm going to be trying to do these every week. So if you really enjoy the show, or if you just slightly enjoy the show, even if you hate the show, follow it. It helps me out more than you can know. Um, share it wherever. Just interact with the content. That's all I ask of you. Thank you. Click whatever link's in the description. And this has been Nietzsche. Good night, folks. <laughs>